Hello and welcome to day six of the Winktown Book Festival. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. I hope you enjoyed yesterday's podcast reading session with Marjorie and Claire from Open Book. They'll be joining us again on Thursday to read an extract from Luis Sagasti's A Musical Offering ahead of his event with us online on Saturday at 5pm. Head over to our website, wigtownbookfestival.com, to book your free tickets. You won't regret it. On this episode, we're talking to Robin Marsak, who will be telling us all about the work of Edwin Morgan and the Edwin Morgan Trust, and to Yvonne Ridley, whose first foray into fiction is a young adult novel set in Dumfries and Galloway. 2020 is a year of literary anniversaries. As well as the 250th anniversary of James Hogg, which of course we featured a few episodes ago, it also marks the 100th anniversary of Scotland's first macker, or national poet, that was Edwin Morgan. We talked to Robin Marsak, the chair of Stanza, Scotland's poetry festival, and a trustee of the Edwin Morgan Trust, about the work they do, and here she reflects on Edwin Morgan's legacy as a poet, as well as a translator. Brilliant to be joined by Robin Marsak, who, among many other multivalent talents, is a trustee for the Edwin Morgan Trust. Robin, can you tell us just a little bit more about the Edwin Morgan Trust? Well, the Trust was founded after Morgan's death with uh, a bequest from his will, and its chief purpose was to establish an award that Eddie felt very very keen on because he himself had difficulties as a young poet working as a poet and he felt very sympathetic and was always immensely encouraging to young writers and this he meant as an award that would allow a young poet 30 or under a breathing space you know it's a large amount of money it's 20,000 pounds so it's a fantastic thing to land in anybody's lap That was the main purpose of the trust. But we felt as trustees, I I wasn't a trustee at the beginning, but they brought me in as an advisor. And we talked about having that award every year. And we thought it's quite an ask, really, to run it every year. So we thought we would alternate the years. And in the alternate years, we decided to set up translation workshops to pay homage to that side of Eddie's work, which was so important to him. Mm. And it's been a hugely busy year, of course, with this being the centenary. Could you say a little bit about some of the there've been new commissions and new celebrations and new life really for, for his work? What's that been like? It's been very full on indeed, because we had managed to engage a lot of partners to help us in this centenary. And in April, coinciding with Eddie's birthday, so his 100th birthday was on the 27th of April, we thought we would be sitting back and handing over to the partners and they would be doing all their wonderful things. Instead, we were running like mad to transfer everything online. It was supposed to start off with a conference at Glasgow University, an international conference. Of course, that's been abandoned. So we rushed to do a little video to begin with, and you can find that on the Trust site. It's a video of all sorts of people saying some lines from their favourite Edwin Morgan poems and why they love them. Alan Cummings is on there, Liz Lockhead and Jackie Kay are on there. We were delighted with the people who wanted to take part in that. And so we try and put something up on the 27th of every month. And we've got some great things coming up and some great things are up there already. And then our second 
great push, I suppose, is to give Eddie's work a second life. And that was the title of his real breakthrough volume in 1968. It's a magnificent volume of poetry. We wanted to encourage people to engage with his work, especially creative people. So we have about 20 grants that we've given to people responding in some way to Eddie's life and work. That's been enormously exciting. Actually, you'll see a little sort of forerunner of that in the National Poetry Libraries of videos that are up on the site, where the National Poetry Library invited some people to respond to Eddie's work. And one of them, uh, notably a young poet called uh, Keith Jarrett, said that he didn't really know the work before he was invited to do so. And yet he's composed um, some responses that are so lively and engaging and thoughtful. And he said himself it had given him different ways of thinking about his own work. And that's what we're really interested in. So some of the people who are getting these Second Life grants didn't know Eddie's work really well, but have thought this is something I can maybe engage with, and they are now doing so. And that's very exciting. That's wonderful. Hugely powerful that, that people have responded who weren't familiar with the work. I mean, for those, there will be people listening, I imagine, who won't be familiar with Edwin Morgan's life and work. How would you, Robin, even begin to sum up Edwin Morgan's work? I, I've just received a new book called Morgan and Me, which is a memoir by Hamish White, Morgan's long-time friend, his bibliographer, his publisher. And I happened to open on a little account of Hamish going with Eddie to Danoon, where he was going to give a reading to fourth and fifth year pupils at Danoon Grammar School. And Hamish has called it Saturn to Danoon. And <laughs> that gives you an idea, as his famous title from Glasgow to Saturn does, of Eddie's range. You know, it's enormous. They were coming back on the train. And they passed a warehouse near Hillington, which had a sign, Scottish Galvanisers. Ah, said Eddie, that's what we need. And Hamish writes, ah, I thought, we have one. So I love the idea of Morgan as a galvanising presence in Scottish literature. And that partly comes because of his range of forms. So, you know, he can do sonnets, he can do all sorts of things. He invents his own first forms. And he's a concrete poet as well. The range is enormous, a narrative poet, a dramatic poet. But also his subject range is huge. Space to acting from Marilyn Monroe to viruses, in fact. He can pick up almost anything. That's extraordinary. But the galvanising part comes from, I think, that ability to be experimental, that wish to be experimental, and also his very extraordinary forward-looking nature. And you can't say that he was simply optimistic, though there was a strong streak of optimism there, but he was always looking at the next thing, not over his shoulder. He was looking forward. Interestingly enough, also this year has brought a lot of discussion about Morgan as a gay poet. And there's going to be a terrific interview up on our site with Christopher White, who was the poet who interviewed Morgan when Morgan was 70, in which he came out in a very public way. But that aspect of his work, which was both out and hidden, that's a very interesting part of Eddie's legacy.
That's wonderful to hear. Really, really important. Um, what could you say about his um, life as a translator? I mean, we know, or if we know, we, we we know him as a poet, but I think people might not have an appreciation of what he what he did there in in translation. A magnificent translator, Peggy, really, and a great curiosity about language, an ability to work with various languages. So. In the Mitchell Library in Glasgow, there's a collection of his books, I think 13,000 volumes that used to be in his library. Those include a huge shelf of dictionaries. And when I was down looking at them with Sean, we had a wonderful hour or so wandering the stacks of the Mitchell. It's kind of a dream come true for a book lover. You know, the range of languages was incredible, including a big Akkadian dictionary for when he was working on the Epic of Gilgamesh. You know, there are not many people who privately own an Akkadian dictionary, I think. And then, of course, his Hungarian dictionaries. And he did wonderful translations from the Hungarian, especially a poet called Attila Josef marvellous and we're very happy that we had a Hungarian translation workshop last year and the results of that uh, some samples of that are coming out this year from Tapsaltiri Press marvellous um, so he was an explorer of language and and an explorer of other people's languages and in fact the first book that Karkinet his UK publisher brought out from Morgan was a translation of the Russian poet Mayakovsky into Scots. And famously, C.P. Snow, reviewing that book in the TLS, I think, said it was marginally more difficult to comprehend than the original Russian. Very condescending from Mr. Snow, yes. But that linguistic inventiveness and curiosity was very important to him. As a quick footnote, Robin, because you yourself are a, are a translator, what what do you think makes for a for a good trans trans? <laughs> what 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 are the a whole other conversation? Yes, probably, absolutely. But, but yes, have you got twenty in, minutes in to spare? Well, you know, actually, I'll, I'll go slightly as a tangent, if I may, Peggy. And there is a debate about a method that's become quite interesting, and which we've used uh, a great deal when I was at the Scottish Poetry Library and involved in translation workshops with literature across frontiers. And that was to put poets to translating poets whose languages they didn't necessarily know. And you would think that the first thing that you had to have is an intimate knowledge of the language you're translating. And of course, that's a fabulous thing to have. I think somebody like Christopher White would say that it was, you must must do that. You must have that knowledge. But for me, it has been very exciting to see poets translating other poets because I've seen this, witnessed a lot of this happening live and I see the kind of negotiation that goes on between the poets and the kind of excitement, I think, that comes from the poets who are being translated at what can happen to them, what their voice becomes in a different language. I'm very interested in the kind of leaps that a poet can make when translating a poet that sometimes a translator would make. That, to me, has been a very fruitful and extraordinary thing to to help make happen, but also to see happen. But Eddie worked with the dictionaries. You know, he, he really went into it. Uh, he, he translated from French and German, wonderful Brecht translator, actually, Italian, um, classical languages and so forth. So just to speak a bit of his uh, role as Scotland's macker, which uh, for those not in the know is, is the poet laureate for, for Scotland. What did that role mean for him, do you think? 
I think he was very pleased by the recognition. He was not a man who pushed himself forward, but I think he had a sense, quite a strong sense of his worth as a poet. And that recognition by Scotland of its own poet was, I think, important to him. And then, of course, he rose to the occasion with the poem about the opening of the Scottish Parliament, which stands as, well, another poet has said to me that they think it's one of the great public poems of the century, really. It is an extraordinary evocation of the past and of the future and of his optimism about what we can require of our parliamentarians and what we should continue to require of them. And like all good poetry, it remains completely relevant. It is not, although it came out of an occasion, it remains absolutely relevant to today. News that stays news, that's not absolutely. poetry, is it? That's literature. That's yeah, that's, literature, that's fine, still, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yeah. Public poetry is a tough gig. It is. That reminds me of something I was reading on the National Centre for Writing's uh, blog. It was a, a great post by Fiona Bennett, and she's talking about why poetry is important at the moment. And she heads up that blog with a quotation from the great American poet Muriel Rukeyser. And she says that poetry contains the truths of outrage and the truths of possibility. And I wouldn't say that Morgan's poem was outraged, but it was admonitory uh, about how Parliament should behave. But it was also full of the truths of possibility. And I think that's a great combination for a public poem. Mm, and a great skill to get the balance of that, you know. That piece with which I'm, of course, familiar, um, it goes into, Robin, it, it talks about poetry's role, not just today in the widest sense, but, but today, today, the kind of COVID strange days that we have. Why do you think that poetry has always been, for many people, most meaningful at times of distress or stress? Well, Fiona Bennett uses this, she says it can be a place of settle and of focus. So I think in times of distress or in times of heightened emotion, there are two things, actually, the ability to focus and the, the feeling from a poem that somebody has expressed something that you felt but couldn't manage yourself, that there's somebody alongside you who understands those feelings, can expand them, can develop them, change them even is really wonderful and I think that because of the poem's size generally not more than a page though sometimes it can be obviously that focus and feeling of settling as long as that page lasts is very good for us especially at the beginning of COVID-19 where so many of us found our attention so distracted. A poem a day was like a small victory. That's right. <laughs> Both yeah, writing yeah. it for those who were writing and then and for reading. Yeah, absolutely. To return then as we sort of approach or finish, Robin, to, to the work of Morgan, what's the poem that means from his from his work, what, what one means the most to you? Well, really, really, really difficult to choose. I'm thinking of three. <laughs> I, I, I'll, narrow, I'll narrow that down to two. One is called The Coles, and that is a, both a memory of his mother, which is very rare. He doesn't talk about his family in his poetry, and about the kinds of emotion that were 
developed in him in his childhood habits of self-discipline and work and what that means. It's an extraordinary poem and it begins with the line uh, and only Morgan surely would begin Before my mother's hysterectomy she cried and told me she must never bring coals in from the cellar outside the house. Someone must do it for her. The thing itself I knew was nothing. It was the thought of that dependence. And it goes on from there. But what a powerful opening. And who, yeah, who that it, isn't would it? use the word hysterectomy in a poem? I don't know whether anybody It's confronting, can isn't it? Yeah, yeah wow. it really is. And the other poem I'm thinking of comes from the end of his writing career from his wonderful volume, A Love and a Life. And it's a poem that was inspired by the scaffolding that went up around his flat and the cleaning or rebuilding. And I often give it to people who are at a transitional moment in their lives because it's an extraordinary metaphor. Things coming down, things being renewed, things being opened up, and what do we do at that moment? So can I give you the whole poem? It's a short one. It's called The Release. The scaffolding is gone. The sky is there. Hard, cold, high, clear and blue. Clanking poles and thudding planks with the music of a strip down that let light through at last. Hammered the cage door off its hinges, banged its goodbye to the bantering, dusty, bricky crew. Left us this rosy cliff face, telling the tentative sun it is almost as good as new. So now that we are so scoured and open and clean, what shall we do? There is so much to say, and who can delay when some are lost and some are seen, our dearest heads, and to those and to these we must still answer and be true. Oh, that's perfect, Robin. That's such a perfect poem for now as well, isn't it? When it just... It is. Lovely. What happens mm. when the crew is gone and the scaffolding's down, and, and what, what are we going to be true to? Many thanks to Robin Marsak, and a reminder that you can listen again to Ortee and Words with Alicia Pirmohamed, the winner of this year's Edwin Morgan Award on our YouTube channel. The spectre of Scotland's bard, Robert Burns, burns brightly in a new young adult series set around a time-travelling history teacher who teaches just up the road in New Abbey. We talked to author Avon Ridley about the first in her series, The Caledonians, Mr Petrie's Apprentice. Very excited to be here, joined by Yvonne Ridley for this conversation about her book, The Caledonians, Mr. Petrie's Apprentice. It's not your first book, Yvonne, but it is your first work of fiction. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the book, sort of set the scene for us for those that won't have read it yet? Yes, well, it's, it's uh, Scottish um, historical fiction, and it's about a Scottish history master called Mr. Petrie, who has the gift of eternal life, and he works for a group of uh, mystical superior beings and he gets involved in all sorts of uh, time-travelling missions and adventures which land him in all sorts of death-defying scrapes and encounters. In the first book, he has brushes with the Russian mafia, Margaret Thatcher in Downing Street, all sorts of uh, ruthless people. And it's not that he changes the course of history. He does more of a nip and tuck 
here and there to make a change for some people's lives. What was the attraction for you of writing for a young adult audience? Well, I moved to Scotland about nine, ten years ago, and I started talking to local people in the borders where I, I moved to about the history, and I realised how little I knew about Scottish history. But what shocked me as I went on with these discussions is how little Scottish people knew about Scottish history. And I then met with a Scottish history buff who told me about um, the whole uh, business of, of Scottish education and how there was an aim hundreds of years ago to improve the literacy rates of the country. And I said, you know, that I had no idea of this. And, you know, we were just talking. And he said, it's such a shame that Scottish history isn't really taught in Scottish schools. And I found this to be quite astonishing. So I created this um, Scottish history master, Mr. Petrie, who has been teaching about Scottish history for 500 years at this school called uh, Sweetheart Abbey, which is near Sweetheart Abbey. It's been quite an eye-opener for me, and I'm hoping it will be a surprise to others. You know, anyone who is Although it's for young adults, I think that anyone who's interested in Scottish history or anyone who is interested in any issues to do with Scotland will enjoy the book. I was going to ask you just a little bit more about how you decide which elements of Scottish history to illuminate or to explore. You know, what are those kind of historical narratives that you want to shine a light on, especially? The first book is really establishing the character of Mr. Petrie and the importance of Scottish history. The encounter that he has in Margaret Thatcher's um, study is to do with um, plans that the Tories had for the Dumfries and Galloway Hills because they were found to be perfect for storing nasty stuff like nuclear waste. And if it wasn't for the strident activities of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and and other environmental activism, that might well have happened. So I'm taking a, a fanciful look at this more recent episode in history. But the book also goes back to the very first Afghan-Anglo war in which 15,000 Brits and their supporters massacred by the Afghans and there was only one survivor and that was... um, a Scottish surgeon who managed to, well, it was too late to raise the alarm, but who gave an account of what happened. And again, there's a fanciful encounter of this Scottish doctor and Mr. Petrie, who persuades him to keep a journal and to write everything about what happens during the first Afghan war which in real life this doctor did, and he did write up his report, but the report wasn't published for about 30 years, and when it was, it was shoved in the back of an appendix and basically buried. And the whole point of what Mr. Petrie was trying to achieve by getting him to write this account is to show that it is just not worth having any sort of military adventure in Afghanistan ever again. Unfortunately, because 
this vital piece of history was actually buried in real life. Britain went on to have two or three disastrous military campaigns in Afghanistan. The book also highlights the folly of human nature and how history keeps repeating itself in disastrous ways and we learn nothing from history. There are also gender issues in there. One of the main characters I don't assign any gender to and I let the reader make up their mind what gender that character has. And there is a part in the book that says, you know, a person's gender is of absolutely no importance at all. And until we learn as human beings to stop attaching labels or assigning anything to human beings, you know, we will remain in a primitive state because things like gender aren't really important. There's, a, there's an awful lot of ideas being explored in the book, certainly, Yvonne. And one of the one of the things that struck me was um, just your treatment of time in the book. You know, one of the the grandfather of one of the central characters, um, Duncan Dewar, is a clockmaker, and and so that's sort of explored through through him and that work. But it struck me this the, sort of the idea that there's a preference for things that are analog rather than maybe what some would say today is a throwaway society and the digital sort of preoccupations. Is that something that you share? And could you say a little bit more about what's being explored? through that? Yes, well, I suppose I come from a generation where, you know, I was, I'm a journalist, but I was uh, brought up on a typewriter. I was pre-computer or ancient, as my millennial daughter keeps on reminding me. But every now and again, my little world um, stands the test of time. I love clocks and I've got grandfather clocks and all sorts of other clocks in the house. And maybe twice or three times a year, we'll get a storm in the borders and power is knocked out. And my clocks continue to go. I think there's room for both sort of generations to actually come together and appreciate each other. And that's something that you have between Duncan Dewar and his grandfather, this really quite nice symbiotic relationship. It's probably something that a lot of grandchildren experience while they have these generational issues with their parents I find the transition quite difficult, and so does Mr. Petrie. He has um, an amazing library archive that he has accrued over the centuries, and he has shelves and shelves and shelves of papers and books and ancient scrolls. And one of the characters that he works alongside says that he can put the entire library system on a a little uh, USB stick and uh, save him all this space. And of course, he's horrified at the thought of losing all his documents and papers and books. So he's not impressed by this advancement at all. I mean, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because in this present, you know, very curious world moment we find ourselves in, where you know this kind of interview is possible and everyone's zooming everywhere, it does also strike me that we've we've become, or some of us certainly, I know that I've been writing more letters to people, sending more analog things, you know, taking more pleasure in not the digital kind of landscape, if you like. I must admit, I have not got a Kindle. 
I just love the feel of a book in my hands. And one of the other things that I'm ashamed to admit is, um, you know, I've been uh, living here for nearly 10 years and I have yet to visit Wigton. And oh. it's great festival. So when you invited me this year, I was so looking forward to going. Then, of course, the pandemic hit and... I'll have to come because uh, the town does feature in the second book. Yeah, you're in for an enormous treat, Devon. It's a it's a wonderful place, and I hope then with the next book and maybe if the world writes itself again that you you will get there. But I did I did want to ask you a little bit actually, just when you were speaking about Gordon and Duncan, you know, and they they speak Gaelic to each other in the opening chapters and so on. And without giving anything away, you know, there's a there's a, a reference to the Annam Cara, um, and that's really deeply rooted in the landscape and language of of Galloway and Scotland. I mean, just could you say a little bit more about what the second book will bring then and how it it sort of speaks to that? that region yes well the second book is so much darker because it examines scotland's history with the slave trade but it also looks at it from quite an unusual perspective and it started on a a radio news bulletin uh, that i heard um, about a mass grave being found at durham cathedral i come from County Durham. And it was a mass grave of Scottish soldiers, just young men in their late teens, early 20s. And they were from prisoners of war from the Battle of Dunbar. So I started reading about the Battle of Dunbar, which was Cromwell's greatest military victory. And I read this horrific story about these thousands of prisoners of war being marched from Dunbar to um, Durham Cathedral, where they were held for a while, and hundreds of men died en route. And Cromwell had a real problem because it cost quite a lot of money to keep prisoners of war. So he sent them off to plantations in Barbados. And I started following this thread and then found that there are pockets of uh, descendants from Scottish soldiers still living in areas of Barbados. Then I also discovered that Robert Burns had contemplated going over to work as an overseer in uh, one of the plantations in the Caribbean, which would have been a, a shocking waste of his talent. And so I uh, also create this scenario where Mr. Petrie goes back in time and meets with Robert Burns and persuades him to focus on his poetry rather than take this um, trip. But the whole slavery issue is tied up. And of course, the streets in in, uh, Glasgow, which are named after some slave traders and the slave heritage. As I say, it's a darker side of Scottish history that I'm also looking at in the second book. I like the idea that Mr. Petrie is is who we have to thank for Robert Burns. Um, yeah, I mean, th- th- this this book also is very international in its outlook and and features you know people of all different faiths and backgrounds. I wonder, um, you know, that the school at Sweetheart Abbey is has students from all over. Why was that important for you to to include characters that came from different places and represented different systems of belief and so on? Well, the the, the school itself was opened originally to help poor children, the children of of farm workers, 
It was to help them uh, be educated. But as the centuries progressed, the makeup of the children attending the school changed and it was a boarding it became a boarding school and then it became um, a school for the privileged and elite and as is reflected in many such schools in existence in the UK today it has an international flavor to it as well but the the book also examines class culture in Britain and there's this constant clashing of class culture, which which is never really. I mean, I come from a working class background. You know, um, I, I've got coal mining, steel, uh, and shipbuilding, and uh, you know, running through my veins. There's very much a sort of clash of of the classes between the children in the um, school who have scholarships and are known as freebies to the very wealthy privileged elite children. I, I wanted to, to sort of bring us to, to towards our finish, um, Yvonne, just by asking a little bit about TV adaptation. If if you were called by a, by a company and uh, and that was a possible thing, what, what, would that be a welcome thing? Would you would you see anyone in any particular roles? I'm thinking of Mr. Petrie, for example, who's such a charming character and such a brilliant teacher. How, how would you how would that play for you? Well, um, a couple of people have read it and said David Tennant. He would be perfect. He would be brilliant for it. I'm thinking, well, yes. That would be wonderful. I really don't know. The the real star, I think, in this book is Scotland. And it would be fantastic if there was um, a, a TV adaptation because I think it would uh, show Scotland in a wonderful light. I, I just think it would be really exciting. Many thanks to Yvonne Ridley and, of course, to Robin Marsak. And thank you again for joining us. Don't forget to follow along with all of our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, as well as catching up with our daily events on YouTube. We'll be back tomorrow with the second of our episodes on Scotland's Year of Coasts and Waters, featuring retired Coast Guard Tony Wood and the multi-talented writer Donald S. Murray. Until then, take very good care of yourselves. Bye-bye for now.